This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Nike is back in the news once again. Their so-called Betsy Ross flag shoe has caused uh, some concern in the marketplace that it's been uh, used by some far-right groups, perhaps the Betsy Ross flag image that that is. Uh, And, of course, Nike recalled those sneakers. So let's get the latest from Evan Novi-Williams. Evan's a sports business reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, again, Evan, it seems like we see Nike in these positions. They're out in front. They have a big brand. Uh, They have a very aggressive marketing uh, profile in the marketplace. What do you think is going on here exactly with this shoe and this issue? Yeah, as you said, Nike, one of those companies not typically afraid to wade into things politically. Um, It certainly sounds as though Nike, and this is amazing to me, that Nike designed a shoe, approved it, manufactured it, and shipped it, and then found out information about the design that made them not want to sell it. Um, that's at least what Nike is sell- saying, uh, which is pretty remarkable for a company of that size that deals with that much from a design standpoint. Um, that seems like a business mistake. Um, now there's a lot of you know there's a lot of controversy out there about this shoe, as you mentioned. Um, you know, the Arizona governor Doug Ducey essentially forced the state to recall about a million dollar grant that that Nike had been given to build a plant right outside Phoenix. Uh, there are calls on social media of of boycotting, which feels a lot like. It did 10 months ago when they released that original Kaepernick ad that, that caused so much of a stir. Um, so, yeah, Nike is, you know, re- recalling a shoe that they had been very, very ready to sell. Um, and they're facing the consequences of that. I'm glad that you brought up the Colin Kaepernick controversy because to play devil's advocate, my first thought was this is a company that's a mature company. They have great marketing internal controls and yet they're still choosing to release some fairly controversial things probably just to drum up discussion right we are still talking about nike we are still talking about colin kaepernick are they doing this on purpose (laughs) it's a question someone asked me this on twitter also i mean i certainly have no evidence that they're doing this on purpose but i think you're you're raising an interesting point that nike understands its customers right nike has a a younger demographic it is mostly uh mostly urban you know a lot of nike's demographic skews probably more on the liberal side they know that it's probably one of the reasons why they did this ad campaign with colin kaepernick originally i would imagine it's a principal reason why they are not selling this shoe once they heard complaints about it. Um, you know, that, that, that Kaepernick ca- campaign, even though there was so much hate about it on social media, ended up being a positive for the company, right? Mark Parker has said it drove engagement, it drove interest, it drove sales. Uh, the stock dipped a little bit and then jumped right back up. Uh, that, that probably ended up being a net positive for Nike. Uh, so having these conversations, I think, yeah, it, it is probably ending up going to end up being a <laughs> good thing for the company. Uh, that said, I mean, I think if you follow the company closely, it's not exactly clear politically where they line up. You know, just a week ago, 
they pulled a shoe off shelves in China because the the Japanese design firm had had posted something supporting the Hong Kong protesters. Uh, so again, this is a company that doesn't you know is not afraid to wade in, maybe make some hard decisions when it when it when it comes to to some political choices. Um, but I would think that Nike would like to have this back, just in the sense that like right. these things were on on shelves, they were shipped to manufacturers. You know, they're already out there. You can yeah. see them on secondary markets. They're tremendously expensive. They were they were so close to releasing this shoe that they were releasing them to influence influencers just to drum up hype. Yep. Um, so the timing there is, is a little rough. So one of the other interesting things about this uh, issue that uh, came to light uh, over the last 24 hours or so is, I guess Colin Kaepernick really does have influence within Nike. I thought he, perhaps he might have just been a figurehead, a marketing icon, but he seems to have had some impact. Yeah, so the Wall Street Journal reported that one of the principal things driving this decision was Colin Kaepernick telling Nike, you know, the 13-starred the, the flag is, is viewed as, you know, oppressive in, in, in some communities. Um, there's no question, as you know, that, you know, athletes who are endorsers, they have tremendous influence, you know. Yep. Steph Curry is probably the second most influential person at Under Armour outside of, outside of Kevin Plank. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, Nike certainly is has a good relationship with Colin. They've used him a lot in the past couple months. Um, and yeah, when, when an athlete like that speaks up, I think it's smart for Nike and probably good business for Nike to pay attention to what he's saying. Well, because I'm here with Paul Sweeney, it's going to be Fundamental Analysis Day. And I was taking a look at footwear as part of the total sales for Nike. And one of the fastest growing segments for the company, I mean, you're looking at very high single-digit growth, 8 9%. Uh, is that where future growth is for the company? Is that big footwear division? Yeah, I think it depends on, on who you ask. The, the biggest, breaking down by sectors, the area that Nike sees the, the biggest runway now is women's clothing and mm-hmm. shoes so both of those things you know not, there, there's the addressable market is bigger for women than it is for men and yet men make up i think 30 to 40 percent of nike sales right and, and then outside of kids i think women are just 25 percent. so you know there is a lot of opportunity there for nike in, in men's in, in women's clothing and shoes um but yeah no question the the it, it's a it's a shoe company at its heart i think a lot of people associate nike more than anything, with the, with the swoosh on the side yeah. of their sneakers. Um, so yes, yeah, sneakers are a principal part of their business. It will always be, I think, the core thing that Nike does. Eben Noby Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Eben is a sports business reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. But I like the way you're going, Taylor, bringing up the, hey, maybe they mm-hmm. know exactly what they're doing here. Maybe this wasn't so much of a mistake. I'm not sure we'll ever find that out, but it certainly uh, is a very interesting conspiracy theory. And well, <laughs> and the timing is suspect, given they are the sponsor for the female U.S. soccer team, oh, which right. is playing today, 3 p.m. Eastern. And what time is it? It's 2.24. Right. So coming up, <laughs> they are the big sponsor of that U.S. women's soccer team as well. Yeah, just looking at uh, the shares of Nike right now, only down about 0.9% uh, today. And they're up about uh, 14% uh, year to date. So it you know, has not been a, a big issue for the company, for the stock. Uh, we'll see if this has any legs, though. Um, you know, you could say there's no Good such thing as exactly no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, but we'll have to uh, see coming up uh, for Nike. Again, the share is only down about 0.9%. This is Bloomberg. Hey, big spender. 
Well, TV disruptor Netflix is starting to make some noise that maybe its free-spending ways may be moderating. To get more reporting on the story, we turn to our good friend John Ehrlichman. John's the anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open. He's also a correspondent for CTV National News. He joins us on the phone from Toronto. John, great to talk with you. You know, maybe this is just a day that had to come at some point. Do you think Netflix will ever pull back on their big spending ways? Well, you know, it's, it, they're, they're in a situation now, Paul, where they're, they're having to fight this story to a certain extent. It first came out of a tech publication, The Information, which basically said that the, the head content player there, Ted Sarandos, who, you know, for those who follow the industry players, he's completely rewritten the rules. He gets a lot of the credit for changing the way that Hollywood does business these days, and, and, and all the top talent loves him. He's got he's brought over a lot of you know big Hollywood stars to the Netflix platform, but you know we knew they were spending all this dough to grow the subscriber base to have these flashy um, marketing pitches and all that kind of stuff, and then you look back at the results with some of your projects. Like we've all had that moment when you're scrolling through Netflix and you see big budget players, Ben Affleck, you know, good good examples of big-name Hollywood talent, and you sort of question whether or not the movie or the TV show was, was really worth it. And, and we can never say, hey, it was, a, it was a bomb because Netflix doesn't release that data. But the reporting suggests that they're, they're starting to have those conversations to a certain degree to say, hey, it's great, we continue to plow ahead, we're putting all this money to work, but can we think twice about maybe not going ahead with that one project that might have cost us more than $100 million and nobody wanted to watch? You know, John, I'm calling this my fundamental analysis day because I'm here with Paul Sweeney. And when you take a look at an income statement, you have the expenses, the cost, right? The cost of uh, producing a big show. And then you take a look at the revenue side. And we have a report out from Nomura saying that they could actually raise about a billion dollars in revenue by showing ads. Is that a topic that is increasingly putting pressure on Netflix is maybe just put in some ads in there. I feel like if they can avoid it, Taylor, they're, they're going to. Um, Netflix has always had this, um, this, this advantage in its simplicity. You know, I think, I think the fact that we know it as the buffet, you go, you pay that price per month. Um, the technology platform is pretty slick. These are all the things that the, the competitors out there really have to master before they can consider themselves having a Netflix-like platform. So if you're going to throw ads in there, might make Wall Street happy. Certainly this idea that maybe they're cutting some of their content spending or, or being a little bit more focused did actually get Wall Street's attention. But I think the bigger thing here for Netflix right now is just what are we? What do we want to be going forward? Because if Disney's going to come, and Paul, I know you've know you covered this uh, so extensively, if Disney is a brand that we all know, and their streaming service and all of the big media players that are launching streaming services have a certain identity with their content, does Netflix really have to think twice about the projects that they're doing? I mean, initially, they were just... Trusting high-profile showrunners that give them huge amounts of money and said, go out, do your thing, pump, pump, pump out the content. Maybe we're reaching a point where they're becoming a little bit more like HBO. You trade the notes, you go back and forth to try to fine-tune so that there's more stranger things. 
you know, more of these storylines that maybe come to identify what it is that's a Netflix show, since we already know what what a Disney branded program is going to be, and that could be an advantage for Disney's streaming service. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we'll have to see how this plays out because there's a lot of competition coming into the market. John Ehrlichman, thanks so much. John is the anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open. He's also a correspondent for CTV National News, joining us on the phone from Toronto. But it's a really interesting time, uh, Taylor, for you know Netflix to maybe be pulling back a little bit on the programming investments just at a time when the competition's really ramping up. Disney's launching their service, and it just seems like everybody else is getting into the streaming business. Well, Paul, you know this better than anyone, given your history of coverage of these companies. Th- companies like Hulu, etc., real threats to Netflix. And I wonder, what are the barriers to entry, right? Because that always dictates competition. Seems like a big hurdle in terms of barriers or entry. You have to have massive CapEx spend to yep. get shows like this. Yeah, you, you, you really do. And so what we're seeing from a lot of the big media companies like AT&T that just bought Time Warner from uh, Comcast, which owns NBC Universal, they're pulling a lot of their programming back from Netflix to put on their own streaming services. There's a story out this week about um, uh, The Office, which is the second most watched show, I believe, or maybe the first most watched show on Netflix. That is being pulled back by Universal, uh, which owns that. So again, if you're Netflix, Netflix, you saw this coming, uh, you mm-hmm. know, years ago, and I think the company, you know, said, "Listen, we have to start uh, making our own shows, our own original programming," and that's when they really ramped up uh, their investments in shows uh, like, you know, Orange Is the New Black and House of Cards, you know, four or five years ago, because they they knew the day was coming when Hollywood would kind of wake up and say, "Hey, we own the real content; let's bring it back uh, to us and make make money." So we'll have to see how it plays out. Well, we had some June auto sales data today, and I would say it's kind of mixed. Uh, Fiat Chrysler had some uh, some good numbers, but Toyota Nissan, not so much. So to help us kind of break through all things auto, we turn to our good friend Kevin Tynan. He covers all things auto. He's a senior auto analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from the BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. What did you take away from some of the auto sales data we got uh, today? Yeah, and, and like you said, Paul, a little bit mixed and... Not surprising when you look at where the month started with, as far as inventory, you know, um, manufacturers look to be somewhere around two months supply, 55 to 65 days is considered manageable, and the month started at 65. So going in, you had the feeling that there wouldn't be real aggressive incentives or discounting because most manufacturers didn't have to didn't have to really create that buzz, that, that showroom traffic, and that the risk was really to the downside if they just let prices be a little bit more firm this month. Kevin, talk to me about the big SUVs and the trucks, because this seemed to be the saving grace of the auto sales this month and this quarter. We know with low oil prices, Americans arguably or less concerned about gas guzzling vehicles why the big increase in all these pickup trucks well yeah and you're right taylor and, and I, I give you some data here i was looking at this this morning and and i saw the headlines that said uh worst first half since 2013 so i said let me let me compare some uh, today to 2013 truck mix and that would be pickups suvs crossovers minivans in 2013 were 51% of sales mix. This year to date, it's about almost 71. Wow. And when you multiply that out by average transaction prices on the truck side and the car side, 
The difference is something like $60 billion. It's 26% more in retail revenue, and we're talking about the worst year since 2013. So very, very different world than 2013 in terms of revenue contribution, in terms of profit contribution, even though the total volume number is basically the same. Yeah, it's interesting, Kevin. You, you talk about the shift mix, and that works great in the U.S., where we like to drive trucks and and SUVs and things like that. That, but that doesn't copy too well in Europe, doesn't it? Yeah, well, and and in my world, you know, looking at the the North America or the U.S. automakers, and we've seen them back out of a lot of those European markets for that very reason, right? What works here doesn't work there. And if you're trying to, uh, you know, sort of globalize your platforms and and uh, recognize your economies in terms of parts and manufacturing, you know, it's not surprising why you see GM and Ford pulling out of those businesses, you know, from the car side, staying in on the truck side in a lot of cases, but really there's no way forward uh, in terms of profitability in those markets with cars. Kevin, talk to me about that, because that seems like the pendulum has swung too far. I mean, I remember a a few months ago hearing companies like Ford saying, basically, we're going to stop making these small little sedans and really focus on, let's say, the F-350 or some of these big trucks. Are automakers really saying that? Or could we go out on a limb and say the big increase in SUVs and trucks is a fad and every five years we sort of get this rotation? Well, no, Taylor. And, and here's why. First of all, there, this idea that I don't know, gas prices, gasoline prices maybe swing mixed back towards cars one, it's not really possible because there are no more cars or there will be no more cars. You know, and you use Ford as the example. You know, Ford basically killed everything except for Mustang and Focus, which is going to become a small crossover. Mustang is 3% of Ford sales. So theoretically, they're going to be 97% truck. Um, so it's also it's not just that consumer pull to trucks. It's what the manufacturers are doing. And if I look at inventory, 4 million units on the ground to start the month, 3 million of them are, are trucks. So basically, higher gasoline prices don't mean a shift from truck to car. It means a, a shift from truck to smaller truck. So, Kevin, for better or worse, I actually have a pickup truck in my driveway, um, and you know I don't drive it. But those Ram trucks, and it's a Ram truck, they had an incredible month, didn't they? Yeah, and there's a, you know, that's uh, Fiat Chrysler being a little bit opportunistic as General Motors switches its platform, uh, its new pickup truck platform, uh, the T1, and Fiat Chrysler getting a little bit aggressive with incentives. So seeing as GM is not really ramped up on production on the new platform, FCA kind of stepped in and threw some money at at Ram, which is ready and fully ramped, and really capitalized and grabbed some market share in that way. Kevin, fold this over into the tariff world of China, where we woke up this morning and we hear headlines, China auto sales falling for a second year in a row. They're down 5%. You know, last year was the first time the auto sales over there had fallen in decades. Any of the demand concerns over in China fold over here into the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's still cyclical. I, it feels like the markets want to paint this with a structural brush that, hey, it's electrification, it's self-driving, which 
doesn't exist yet. Um, but I think it's still cyclical there. And, and the other thing in China, well, two things. One is, you know, the, the government in terms of subsidizing sales is very aggressive or can be very aggressive. So you're going to have these big drop-offs if they pull back on that. The other thing is on electrification in China, it's really the market that can help uh, automakers amortize the costs or, or the investment they have in that. So I think China is a big key in, t- in terms of this move from internal combustion to electrification. So maybe that just delays the, uh, the urgency or the sense of urgency that global automakers have in China or in terms of electrification. So, Kevin, about 30 seconds left. Just I know you put a note out this morning on the auto parts business. What's your take there? Yeah, you know, they're sort of caught in the, uh, you know, in the wave of this shift from, or at least in the market's perception in terms of valuation, right? Like, there's this idea that the potential for electrification is huge, but we're just not seeing it yet. So, the profitability isn't there yet. So, the big global automakers aren't really committed to it yet. And, you know, the suppliers sort of have to be on the sideline, ready to jump in to go full force when that happens. But you're seeing when you look at Tesla's income statement, no sense of urgency by the larger automakers yet. Exactly. Kevin Tynan, thank you so much. Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from BI headquarters in lovely Princeton, uh, New Jersey. Uh, Taylor, I think it's, I find it amazing just in the last couple of weeks when we saw the news about Ford, you know, kind of mm-hmm. pulling out of Europe and GM had done so earlier. It's just amazing. That you think that they can't be profitable there. Well, uh, Kevin Tynan with his great analysis on the truck mix. I mean, 2013 trucks were 50% of total sales. We're now 70%. It's all trucks. Yeah, exactly. I was just spent the weekend, uh, Lisa and I were down in Nashville for a remote and spent the weekend in, in <laughs> t- Tennessee, Kentucky. And I can tell you, they drive a lot of trucks there and there's some amazing looking <laughs> trucks uh, on the road and again i do have a truck a pickup truck in my driveway can't wait till my son goes back to college um so anyway but anyway it is autos lots of good things happening there this is bloomberg well paul you were very smart when you mentioned this earlier it's all about oil prices you have both crude and Brent off anywhere from two, three, four percent. Brent is what caught my eye, well below a sixty-five handle, hovering right around a sixty-two seventy-four. So to get some reaction on all of the price, supply, demand analysis, is Stuart Glickman, head of energy research at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Stuart, what do you make of the price action coming off of the OPEC? plus production cuts that they had extended for an additional nine months. Was that just not enough to get it done? Hi, Taylor. Uh, Thanks for having me. I I think that um, the supply cuts uh, extended nine months was actually a little bit longer than we've typically seen. And I think what's, what's going on here is that oil prices are almost a barometer of what people expect for global GDP. Uh, to the degree that people are worried about uh, trade, trade issues, um, concerns about China slowing down, oil is really f- taking it um, badly, and I think that's what we're seeing mainly today. So perhaps, I mean, we had some weak uh, manufacturing uh, data out of the U.S., China, Europe, I guess. Are you su- su- suggesting that putting that all together, that traders are really questioning the supply side of the equation? I mean, I'm sorry, the demand side? Uh, yes, very much, Paul. I think I think the, the biggest concerns these days are really coming from the demand side. It's kind of a wild card. 
Um, it's not something uh, that really is in the power of the major producers to control. I mean, if it's if supply is too much, they they can take some supply off the market. They've already announced that you know they're going to extend the 1.2 million barrels a day cuts for another nine months, which on on the day of the announcement helped. Oil was up about three percent that day, uh, at least briefly. But uh, it's at the moment it seems like it's not enough because the demand side is is over is overweighing right now. Stuart, we know that OPEC Plus can't come out and state that they are targeting a specific price. Yet when they're doing production cuts, when Brent is at $65 a barrel, $62 a barrel, we know perhaps that they do want prices higher. What price, is it 85 or what, does OPEC Plus want oil to be at? Well, that's a really interesting question, Taylor, because I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between the different parties, or at least the major parties, in OPEC+. Plus. So on the one hand, you have the Saudis, who I think would prefer oil, Brent oil being somewhere in the 75 to $80 range. And then you have Russia, which I think would be satisfied with a little bit lower pricing. Uh, and, and I think the reason for the disconnect is that um, Saudi Aramco, which is really the biggest provider of, of the Saudi Arabian budget, um, they have to help contribute to a whole host of social programs in Saudi Arabia, uh, and I think that that drives um, Saudi interest in a higher price to help pay for all of that. So, Stuart, what's really seemed to change on the global oil front is the United States and its shale oil output. Give us a sense of how you know the market's really changed over the last 10 years, given now that the U.S. is such a huge producer of oil. Uh, it, it's an important development, to be sure. Uh, U.S. development has gone from, um, or production has gone from, you know, 5 million barrels a day not so many years ago to now north of 12 million barrels a day. Uh, and I, I think the way it manifests in oil prices is that, you know, just, just not that long ago, we had um, that situation with tankers being fired upon in the Straits of Hormuz, and, and oil, oil moved up, but really not considerably. And I think the reason for that is that everyone realizes that the U.S. can help backstop a fair bit of spare capacity if push came to shove and, and, and production from the Middle East was less than, you know, was, was, prior, was previously expected. That was not the case a decade ago. Stuart, as we fold this back into the U.S. and we take a look at WTI at about $56 a barrel, have the big oil companies, I'm thinking Chevron, Exxon, Learn to be profitable at $55 a barrel. It was really just a few years ago when below $100 a barrel, they were really suffering. Have they learned now to be more efficient and be profitable at these levels? Uh, for many of them, particularly the larger uh, companies, they have. Uh, and you're right. The, the last several years, uh, dating back to mid-2014 when Saudi Arabia launched a market share war, has really effectively been a boot camp for a lot of these E&Ps and integrateds to get their houses in order. And so they have really done a good job at cutting down their, their cost base. Um, the integrateds, particularly Exxon and Chevron, are throwing off a tremendous amount of free cash flow, even with prices where they are. When it comes to the, the pure play E&Ps, some of them have done the same. The smaller ones, for the most part, have not. And so when these names come under pressure, excuse me, when oil prices come under pressure, what you see is the smaller ones um, – faring worse in the market that day than, than the bigger ones who, who typically do a better job at handling lower oil prices. 
Stuart Glipman, head of energy research at CFRA Research on the phone from New Jersey. Hopefully from the Jersey Shore, I should say, as we head into yeah. July 4th. Uh, <laughs> talking all things uh, oil, we thank Stuart for joining us. And it's interesting when I, you know, when I read the research for about, uh, you know, you know the energy space coming out of Wall Street. It's, you know they always talk about the supply and the demand, but it really seems like right now it's more of a demand picture. Um, I think when the market feels like, gee, demand might be weakening, maybe in, uh, you know exacerbated by global trade. That's when we see pullback in in oil. Uh, conversely, when you get some good news on trade or some good economic data, uh, that pushes oil up more than the supply, and that, that may be because. You know, there is a more fluid supply situation given the uh, U.S. and shale. Uh, we will follow oil going forward. It is a weekday today for oil. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, we are driving to the close. Ten minutes before, twelve minutes before the close. And we had kind of a you know, soft market here up to on the S&P. But year to date, boy, the S&P, we're up about 18%. We've got the Fed on the sidelines. Trade tensions, at least for the next uh, couple of days, maybe weeks, seem to be a little bit on the back burner. So what is an investor to do? Our next guest should help us with that. Alan Zafran, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. He's on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a heck of a ride so far in 2019 in the first half here. What do you think uh, you're looking for for the second half? Well, thank you for having me on the show. I will surprise you in saying that, albeit I think you've got to be all defensive here in the sense that you've gone up so much so fast. You know, there's an argument that we actually did go through a bear market. If you go back September through December of uh, 2018, the S&P fell 19.5%, actually fell 20% intraday, and small caps are down 27%. If you start from that as your premise, we're bouncing out of a bear market. We could go much higher. And if you ask how much higher, here's a statistic of the day for you. There's an investment group in Milwaukee, and they looked at what the average one-year gain is for the S&P 500 once the 10-year Treasury note falls by more than 25% in a matter of three months. And we've just witnessed that. So if you go back, the 10-year Treasury was at 2.08% on June 3rd. We're, we're now down at 198. It's fallen 27%. The average return is 22% in the year following a drop of the Treasury note of that amount. If you do the math, on March 4th of this year, the S&P was at 2,792. If you believe it's going to go up 22%, you're going to get to 3,400 on the S&P. That's another 15% by March of next year. So even though... I'm admittedly cautious at the speed at which we've gone up, and I think things are a bit ahead of themselves. There's an argument out there that a lot of the built-in liquidity from the lower rates for longer, along with all the incremental stimulus we've gotten from fiscal policy, we can move much higher and catch everybody to the upside. That's still a possibility. Well, Alan, a lot of what drives prices higher has been the basic fundamentals. And I was reading a report that 
analysts are now revising their earnings per share estimates, even going into 2020, significantly higher. As we enter earnings season, has earnings per share growth bottomed out for you? I know we're looking at perhaps a second quarter decline in growth year over year, but we're nowhere near an earnings recession. How do you see earnings per share growth filtering out for you in Q2 and into the rest of 2019? I see it uh, that one I see very much like consensus. I think we are bottoming, bottoming out on the growth uh, of, or, I mean, I'm bottoming out on the pace at which earnings will grow, and I think it's going to reaccelerate from here. And again, that's that's where you are. It's all about growth at this point. So if you get this reacceleration of growth, it accounts for all the equity run-up you had in advance, and it makes sense to stay at strategic weight, if not overweight. If, the other hand, if if you actually think the bond market's got it right and it's uh, the precursor to a big slowdown, that's why it's risky to be overweight risk assets like equities and credit. But uh, my, my modeling shows that earnings are projected to grow and will accelerate further into 2020. Are you in the camp, and we're, I'm hearing more and more folks that may be going into this camp that a recession is likely by mid-2020. Are you in that camp? No, I'm not, I'm not quite in that camp. Um, According to J.P. Morgan, there's a J.P. Morgan Chase model out there. According to them, the S&P is projecting no possibility of a recession. It said one year, the junk bond spreads indicate there's an 8% likelihood of a recession within a year. But the Treasury market is signaling a 62% probability within a year. That's why it's so confusing. Bond markets are signaling something other than the equity markets. I believe if you see a recession, it probably comes post-election. I think that's partly because I think politicians on both sides of the aisle have every incentive to generate policies and procedures that further stimulate growth up and through the November 2020 election. So I don't think recession shows up till uh, some point after that election. Talk to us, um, sort of wrap in jobs day here. As we go forward to Friday, we have to get through 4th of July holiday first. As you push forward to Friday, there's been a lot of talk after the week, May numbers, only about 75,000, but compared with the revisions the month prior, it was about flat. How do you see the jobs number on Friday? Is there anything that you see in that number that could change how the Fed reacts? Yeah, if you had a serious upside, I think payrolls are going to add about 150,000 payrolls. It's more or less in line with consensus. Uh, your risk is actually if we, ex- we reaccelerate growth too quickly economically, you're going to take the punch pull away because uh, right now the market is laying in a forecast to set cutting rates at least twice by year end, if not three times. If you have an upside surprise on economic growth statistics, you're going to find yields coming back up and actually you're going to see multiples on the, on the stock market compress. So I think that's actually a risk that isn't discussed much, but ironically, too strong economic growth may not translate into a very attractive stock market in the short to intermediate term. We've built in a lot of anticipation of the Fed acting, and you're going to have to see them come through in order to support where PE multiples are. So, Alan, you mentioned at the beginning that uh, you're a little bit more conservative. Um, if you take a look at defensive stocks, they ain't cheap. Where do you, th- do you see any value in the market right here? Yeah, there's value. I mean, first of all, I think you... you Part of it, it's a relative play, right? If I've got, you know, cash giving me less than two percent, I got two year two year treasuries at one and three quarters percent. Even my ten years at one ninety eight. I take a look at the S and P five hundred. You know, there's something called the earnings yield. If I pay 
20 times earnings for the S&P 500, and I'm actually paying a little less. That's the same as saying when I make put $100 in, I'm getting $5 in earnings. I'm getting a 5% yield return of earnings on my dollars. That's 3% more than a risk-free treasury. That's why the market's holding up here. And I think you have to still look at high-quality franchises that are durable, and even in a moderately slower economic cycle, they're perpetuating growth. So clearly that's why technology is at the top of the charts this year, 29% returns year-to-date. Selected discretionaries like, like an Amazon and selected communication stocks make a lot of sense. I'm not convinced with rates down at this level, jumping into rate sensitive like utilities and REITs makes a lot of sense at this point. Alan Zaffron, thank you so much. Alan is a founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital, joining us on the phone from Foster City, uh, California, talking a little bit, getting a little bit defensive. But again, there's not that many places where you could say, I'm going to jump into utilities or consumer cyclicals. You look there, they've, they've all had a run and they're not cheap. Well, and what I loved about his comments when he pulled in the dividend yields, is we have a measure of dividend yield minus treasury yield with a massive drop in bond yields. He's right that that dividend yield is actually now starting to look attractive on a relative basis. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, it's been a heck of a first half of the year. The question is, obviously, for a lot of investors, you know, how much can it continue and how dependent uh, is it on uh, the Federal Reserve? This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.